welcome to episode 50 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii 5 podcast. I am your most lovely host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Rides. We are almost done with season four, and with these next two episodes, we get even closer. Episode 22, Didn't We Meet at a Murder, and episode 23, Follow the White Brick Road. If you couldn't tell, it is an incredibly nice day in May when I am recording this episode, and my neighbor is out and he is blasting his tunes literally right underneath my window. So that is going to be our ambiance for this particular episode. I cannot win for losing. Anyway, it's always a win when we go to Hawaii, so let's go to Hawaii. Three in the chest, close range. Found a couple of hors d'oeuvres on the floor. I guess he never had a chance to eat them. What time? Doc estimates time of death between five and eight last night. Uh, he may be able to sharpen that after the autopsy. Booze and the hors d'oeuvres were delivered at uh, 5 p.m. Maid found the body this morning at quarter of 10. Shin? Anybody hear anything? Negative. No one saw, no one heard, not even next door. Silence. Yeah. Strictly pro, all the way. What about his bodyguards? Nowhere in sight, but we have an APB out on them now. I must be living right. Got an easy one for a change. Fingerprints? Right. Four sets. Nothing light, nothing smudged. We could all win picture contests. Doesn't figure Not with a hit like this. Hot lead. Three people stopped by to see him between 5 and 5.30. All were announced by the front desk. Like I said, an easy one for a change. Pick them up, Kono. Dano, I want a background report on each. The book. Season 4, episode 22, Didn't We Meet at a Murder. Air date February 22nd, 1972. Directed by Paul Stanley. This is his 15th of 19 episodes. And written by Jerome Coopersmith. This is his 9th of 32 episodes. Under the guise of showing off carpet samples to TV repairman Clem at his shop, Mr. Chang is actually coordinating a killing. In a secret compartment in the briefcase, there are three pictures, Clem and two other people. In the bottom of the briefcase are three guns with silencers. Mr. Chang pays a visit to Frank Wellman of the Business Council, giving him one of the guns, explaining that the other pictures are the people he'll be working with, and they'll be there when he arrives. Wellman asks who they are, but he says it's best not to know. His final stop is a lovely beach house where Mr. Chang gives wealthy widow Bonnie Soames a plane ticket and the final gun. He shows her another picture, this one of the man they're going to kill. At 5.0 headquarters, Steve talks about Chicago mob boss Marty Martinet, who's coming to Hawaii. Steve wants to know why. He sends Kona to check out the Coconut Wireless and Chin Ho to check out the hotels to see if there's a mob convention going on. He and Dano go to the airport to meet Marty. Meanwhile, Bonnie Soames is on Marty's flight and she starts working her magic. She tells the stewardess that her headset isn't working right and then moves to the empty seat next to Marty. He waves off his bodyguards and over the course of the flight, the two of them get friendly, Bonnie telling him that she knows who he is. Marty ends up inviting her to his place after they land, assuring her that his bodyguards will be sightseeing when she does. At the airport, Bonnie goes off in another car, but Steve and Dano crash Marty's party, Steve forcing himself into Marty's car, asking him what's up. 
Marty says nothing. Steve warns him not to slip up while he's in Hawaii or he'll come crashing down on him. At the TV repair place, Clem's wife Doris joins him for lunch, only he's drinking more than eating, and then he rushes off to do service calls, telling her not to hold dinner. At the business council office, Frank Wellman tells his secretary that he's leaving early for the day. Bonnie and Marty are drinking in Marty's hotel room while Clem fixes his TV. Wellman shows up representing the business council to welcome Marty, who's supposedly setting up shop there. The three of them talking to Marty at the same time disorients him into dropping his guard. The three of them then pull out their guns and shoot him. They dump the guns in Clem's toolbox and he leaves. The other two synchronize their watches and then leave together. Five-O shows up to the murder scene the next morning. Marty caught three in the chest between five and eight the previous night. They know a silencer was used because no one heard anything. They also don't find any casings. The bodyguards are suspiciously MIA. Jay finds four sets of perfect prints, and Kono finds out three people were known to be in the hotel room with Marty. Danny interviews Clem while Steve interviews Wellman. They tell similar stories about being in the hotel room at the same time with an attractive woman whose name they didn't know. Both say that Clem left first and then Wellman and the woman at the same time. Steve and Danny confer that the two men's stories check out with each other, but Steve isn't letting them go until he talks to Bonnie Soames, whom Kono is supposed to be bringing in. Meanwhile, Steve talks to Che, who says there's no ballistic markings on the gun. The barrel's been bored to remove the lands and grooves. It's pro work, which apparently rules their three suspects out. Kono wrecks the vibe by saying that Bonnie Soames won't come in for an interview because she has a social to go to. Steve and Chin take the party to her and question her at her house. Bonnie tells him that she met Marty on the plane, knew he was a mobster and was fine with it, and then says she didn't stay long because there were too many people in the room. Clem, the TV guy, left first and then she left with Wellman. Steve tells Chin to let Clem and Wellman go. Clem drives to a lookout where he jumps the wall and finds Mr. Chang waiting for him down on the beach. He goes down and gives him the used guns. Mr. Chang puts them back in his briefcase and chucks the whole thing in the ocean. Meanwhile, on another beach, Bonnie sees her boy toy Rick chatting with a pretty blonde his own age, which pisses her off. She tells him that if she catches him with that blonde again, he's out on his ass. Rick says something else is bothering her, and she tells him about Stephen Chin's visit, but only as much as to say it's not about the other thing. She paid to get him out of that jam, and Rick reminds her that it was their jam, and he's not happy with her current bullshit. He then leaves. Steve laments that they're batting zero, and Danny makes it worse by confirming the bodyguards were at a bar from 4.30 to 8. Steve finds out from the real estate board what Marty was in town to buy, and he and Chin go look at the factory. It's currently being used as a carpet factory by Mr. Chang. He's been leasing the building, and when the owner died, he attempted to buy it, but Marty outbid him for it. Mr. Chang has no idea why Marty would want the building, because it's not worth much, and he'd actually retracted his own bid. But he happily shows Steve and Chin around, taking him through the sales floor, offices, warehouse, shipping, and production. He even takes them to the basement, apologizing for all of the dirt and dust and discarded junk. Nothing seems out of order. However, when the men come upstairs, Steve runs into Charlie Saunders, an ex-con he has history with. Charlie was a former warrant officer and private investigator who was convicted of bribery and conspiracy to obstruct justice. He did time and got out on good behavior. 
Charlie's a loner, but that doesn't mean he isn't tied into all of this, as well as Mr. Chang. He has Chin Ho keep an eye on the carpet company while they dig into Mr. Chang's history. Clem goes to a house apparently for a TV repair job, but it's really a setup by Mr. Chang. He has another favor to ask of Clem, even though Clem thought they were done. That's the thing about murder. One is never finished with it, and the police are never bored with the subject. Chin reports that Wellman has shown up at the carpet factory and received an envelope. Stu tells Danny to get over Wellman's apartment, and Danny intercepts Wellman as he arrives. He refuses to give up the envelope without a warrant and then makes a run for it when Danny tries to arrest him. Danny chases him inside, but Wellman gives him the slip, taking the elevator to his apartment. Danny rushes outside to call it in when he catches Wellman taking the expressway down, falling to his death from his apartment. Inside Wellman's place, 5 finds ample evidence of blackmail, and they begin to put the pieces of this hit together. This is a really clever assassination plot. You have three killers who are not professionals and have no apparent connection to each other or the victim coming together to do the job. Now, we don't know all of this at the very beginning because the episode begins with Mr. Chang giving Clem the first gun and showing him the pictures in his briefcase. So we don't know that Clem is not a professional. And when, But when he takes the guns to Wellman, and Wellman asks who the other people are, and Mr. Chang won't go into detail aside from saying these are the other people that are going to be there for the same purpose you are, you start getting hints that maybe these aren't professionals. But you're still not 100% sure. And then we see, we meet Bonnie, and she gets not only the gun, but also a plane ticket, and she gets to see the picture of the actual intended victim. So the other two gentlemen only see pictures of who else will be in the room, not the actual target. It's by process of elimination. They know who they're going to shoot. But Bonnie gets the actual picture of Marty. And that is because the other two have an easier time of getting into the room. Wellman is going to go there on behalf of the business council and welcome Marty and his business to Oahu. And it's easy for Clem to fake the need of repairing a television. Bonnie doesn't have an easy in, so she's going to use her feminine wiles. Because as she is described as a very attractive 40-year-old woman, and we find out later she's a rather wealthy widow. And she uses her charms well. She comes out bold as brass because they're in first class. And Marty's sitting there with an empty seat next to him. His two bodyguards are behind him. Bonnie is a few rows behind them. And the stewardess comes past with a cart of fruit and cheese because back in the day, flying was a luxury and we weren't all treated like mass cattle, poked and prodded and crammed into a flying tin can for the profits of airline CEOs. But anyway, back in the day, they would give you headsets or you could purchase headsets. I'm not exactly sure. But you'd get these headsets that you would plug into your chair into the seat, and you could listen to things. And that's what Bonnie is trying to do. She's trying to listen to Barbara Streisand, but it's only coming out as Stravinsky. The stewardess says, oh, that's your channel selector. I will get someone to look at it. But she doesn't wait for that. She just moves up to the empty seat next to Marty and plugs that in, oblivious to the bodyguards behind her starting to get out of their chair and Marty looking at her like, you've got to be kidding me. 
And from there, they start to get friendly. And that gets her an invite to his hotel room after the fact. And what's fun about this is that after they land and Bonnie goes off in her car, Marty gets into his car and Steve and Danny come in. And it's very much like we saw with Bonnie in Bold as Brass. Steve just gets in the car with Marty and asks him what he's doing in Hawaii and basically says that if you're not on the up and up, that I'm going to be a problem for you, as is very much Steve's way. But anyway, we don't know what's compelling these three people to moonlight as hitmen because Clem has his own TV repair business. Mr. Wellman works for the business council. Bonnie Soames is a wealthy widow with a very nice beach house. Why would they need this second job? especially since they seem to have no apparent connection to Mr. Chang or to Marty. So there's a lot going on here we don't know. And it's great the way it unfolds and how we get those bits and pieces of information over the course of the episode. The other interesting thing is, is that all of the guns that Mr. Chang gives to our assassins, they're all standard 9mm handguns, all equipped with silencers. But they also have this curious plastic tube clear plastic tube over the top and you're questioning what that's for until the actual shooting occurs. So what happens is Bonnie and Clem are already in the hotel room with Marty. Marty is trying to work some magic on Bonnie. They're having conversation, but Clem's over in the corner working on this TV, kind of being distracting. Wellman shows up with his business council spiel and the three of them end up disorienting him by all kind of not talking at once, but Frank Wellman, Honolulu Business Council. Wellman? Oh, yeah, come on in. You got the fellow that sent over the... Oh, just a small gesture. Small? Come on, that's good champagne. I got a cocktail lounge and East Cicero gets two bucks a shot for that stuff. So how come you're so good to me, Mr. Wellman? Pate or caviar, Marty? Oh, some of that liver stuff with... I don't know anything. We welcome all businessmen setting up shop in Honolulu. I understand you're buying some property here. Yeah, so what's that? One of each, all right? Yeah, anything. We have contacts with the people you'll be dealing with. Banks, government agencies. TV sets fixed. We can save you a lot of trouble. So shut it off. But it'll cost me, right? One pate, one black caviar. I want the tubes to warm up. Our service costs nothing at all. Or would you rather have the rare? Warm up for what? We're here to help the businessman. I want to be sure it was just the horizontal. He drops his guard, and that's when he gets shot. So they show when they are shooting Marty that those clear plastic tubes are to catch the casings because Che doesn't find any casings and nobody hears anything, so the silencers worked. Clem takes the guns, puts them in his toolbox, and he leaves. Meanwhile, Bonnie and Wellman synchronize watches. They wait the appropriate amount of time, and then they leave. So what ends up happening is... The next day, the maid finds the body. Please, let's give some love to Hotel Housekeeping and all of the corpses that they find on these shows. Five Oak gets in there. Don't find any casings. Nobody heard anything. But Che finds four prints. And we know that there were four people in that hotel room. And he makes a point of saying that these are four perfect prints. Up until that particular moment, it looks clear cut that this was a professional hit. Then we see that there are prints left. Well, a professional is not going to leave prints. And then Kono comes running in saying that witnesses place three people 
in that hotel room with Marty during the time where he would have been shot, which was between five and eight. So they bring these three people in or try to. We then get a really cool scene of Danny interrogating Clem and Steve interrogating Wellman. And they are going back and forth, cutting between interrogations, showing how the stories that they tell, how they answer the questions match up, but nothing is exact. They're, they're doing the stories in their own words. So there's nothing hinky about the alibis that they give. There's nothing precise nothing exact because Clem says, well, I left at 515. Wellman says, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes after five is when Clem left. He wouldn't know. Clem might know because he's running repair calls. He'd want to know what time he left when he was finished with the call. Wellman's not going to know. Obviously, Wellman does never names Clem by name because why would he know Clem's name? But Clem knows Wellman's name because he heard Wellman introduce himself. Neither one of them know Bonnie's name. They weren't properly introduced to Bonnie. But Wellman admits that he left the same time she did. And both men and Bonnie were seen by witnesses leaving at the times that they said they did. So they have alibis for leaving a little bit after 5, before 5.30. And their stories end up being corroborated by Bonnie. She flummoxes Kono because he goes to get her and she refuses to come in because uh, she has a social to go to. So Chin and, and Steve go to talk to her. And she pretty much says the same thing. Her only difference is that she admits that she met Marty on the plane coming back because she says she was in L.A. talking to a producer about getting her boy toy Rick's acting career started. And that's why she was on that plane coming back to Oahu. She knew who Marty was. Him being a reported mobster from Chicago did not bother her. And the reason why she left after only being in the hotel room for like 15 minutes was she says that it was too busy, that there were too many people there. She calls it a Marx Brothers movie. And she backs up what Clem and Wilma said about when they laughed, that the TV repair guy left first and then she left with the business guy. So all these stories check out. And then further, we get the evidence that the guns were bored out to eliminate the lands and grooves, to make it harder to tie the bullets into a gun. That further points in the direction of a professional, which would rule out our three suspects. So this looks like a perfect hit job, especially when Clem takes the guns and gives them back to Mr. Chang at the beach. They're at a like a lookout area. You jump down, go down the hill. There's some beach there, but there's really rough water crashing into the, the rocks there. And he puts everything back into his briefcase. I'm guessing he took the carpet samples out and he chucks it into the ocean. Theoretically, I'm guessing no one is going to find this, that the tides will take it out and we'll never see it again. And that's a pretty good plan, even if it's littering. Now we get our first hint of motivation for our assassins. When Bonnie gets up the next morning and she's obviously slept in a little bit, she might be a little hungover, and she goes down to the beach and sees Rick talking to this blonde girl his own age, because he's obviously in his early 20s, probably 20 years younger than she is. And immediately she's jealous. She's already irritable because she's committed murder and the police have come around. But now she's really irritable to see this because as she tells Rick, he's basically a kept man. And if she catches him with this blonde girl again, he's out on his ass. 
Okay, straight talk. If I catch you with that blonde again, you can go back to being the handsomest towel boy in Waikiki. Now, she walked up to me. Can I control that? You better start controlling something. Bonnie. Look, I've had it. The silk suits, the imported shirts, the $20 ties. Okay. Okay, now, what's really bugging you, huh? Is it those two guys last night? Well, who were they? They were cops. Hey, it wasn't about... No, it wasn't about... I paid to get you out of that one. Don't you ever forget it. Bonnie, you paid to get us both out of that one. You, kiddo, you! Now, I don't have to take that from you. I'm not your slave. Now, you can take your shirt, your suit, and your ties. You can find yourself another towel boy. So there is an inkling of what could possibly be motivating Bonnie to commit murder is this allusion to this thing that previously occurred. But as it is, Rick gets pissy with her attitude and stomps off. They end up later making up, but I just don't see a real good future for that particular relationship. Anyway. We also get another inkling of the importance of blackmail. When Clem goes on what's on a p- apparent TV repair call and finds Mr. Shang waiting for him to ask him for another favor. This isn't work, Clem. It's a favor for a friend. I thought we were finished, friend. One is never finished with murder, Clem. It's a subject that never bores the police. And that comes back later with Clem ruminating to his wife, will I ever be free of this? No, my good dude, that's not how it works. Anyway, in the meantime, 5 is still pursuing leads. So their apparent suspects are a bust. They don't have any forensic evidence leading to this professional. And they strike out with the bodyguards because it, their alibi is being at a bar from like 4.30 to 8. And of course they wouldn't have gone back to their boss's hotel room because They were pretty much under strict orders to not. He was there with a lady friend, if you get my meaning. So instead, they decide to look into why Marty was there, because there's no apparent mob convention happening. So they look into the factory that Marty was supposed to be buying. They get that information from the real estate board, which is how Wellman said that he found out Marty was coming. So they get that information and they go check out this factory, which is a carpet factory run by our friend, Mr. Chang. So now we're starting to see maybe why Marty was a target. When you find out that Mr. Chang had been leasing the building, had tried to buy the building once the owner died, but Marty outbid him, you start to see that maybe Mr. Chang was motivated by keeping his business where he wanted it he wanted to have this building. It's a little curious that he said that he withdrew his bid because the building wasn't worth anything, but that could be deflection. They're not going to suspect this business owner, this legitimate business owner of taking out a mob guy over a building that he didn't really want, that he withdrew his bid on anyway. But he does show Steve and Chen all over the building, through the factory area, the production area, even takes them down into the basement nothing seems out of order and it really doesn't. There's nothing that piques your interest until they come back up to the stairs and Steve runs into Charlie Saunders. It kind of looks like from the interaction between Steve and Charlie that he's a red herring. It's possible he could be a red herring that he just happens to work for Mr. Chang and happens to be this ex-convict 
who was a private investigator, but he was convicted of bribery and conspiracy to obstruct justice. And he makes it very clear in his interaction with Steve that if he's there to get him fired, to just give it up because Mr. Chang knows about his history. So there's a brief moment when it could be that Charlie is just a red herring. But when we have Chin surveilling the carpet factory because Steve wants to figure out what's so great about this building, we see Wellman show up and receive an envelope. Danny intercepts him at his apartment building, and it is great because he gets Wellman out of the car. Wellman will not let go of the envelope. Danny goes to arrest him, presumably under the charge of obstructing justice. And when he goes to arrest him, and he puts him up against the car and starts to search him, and Wellman turns, and he basically (laughs) flings Danny onto the hood of the car (laughs) and then takes off running. It's impressive because Mr. Wellman's an older man, but it's also kind of funny because he just flings Danny. I love you, Danny, but it was it was pretty funny. And so Danny takes off after him, but once Wellman gets in the elevator, he gives up the chase and comes back to call for backup. And it's while he's outside at his car radioing in that we see Wellman fall from his apartment. And it is it's a magnificent dummy swan dive. Just beautiful work there. And when we get to Wellman's apartment, and Fivo is taking a look around. We find that what was in the envelope were pictures. We find them burnt in the sink. They're trying to figure out why Wellman would have committed suicide. For whatever reason, I guess because of the previous scene in which Mr. Chang asked Clem for a favor, I thought for a second that maybe Clem was involved in chucking him out the window. But it turns out Clem's favor is something else. And Wellman actually did commit suicide. And he committed suicide because they were going to find out his secret. And that was, in Steve's words, Wellman was gay and he was a transvestite. So he was a gay man who preferred to, or who liked to dress up as a woman. I don't believe we use transvestite anymore. I don't think he was necessarily trans. I think this is more of a drag thing. And I don't know how Steve came to this conclusion, except that there are pictures all over Wellman's walls of these beautiful women, which Steve looks at. And then when you look in the sink at the charred remains of the pictures that were in the envelope, you see bits and pieces, like the lower half of a woman, or apparently a woman, I guess. Steve looks at all these pictures and he says, this is what Wellman's secret was. And Danny's like, what are you talking about? He goes, these pictures are all men. So he was gay and into drag, which is completely unremarkable in this day and age outside of a small group of people trying to ban it because they're shit. Anyway, how Steve could look at those pictures and know that they were drag queens, I have questions. And these were, this was like 1972. So we are not talking about the big, bold New York drag scene. Their goal was not the show part of drag. It was the dressing up and feeling pretty aspect of drag. So the fact that Steve can look at these pictures and know that is either his incredible Steve Spidey sense or there's something he's not telling us. But anyway, back in 1972, this would have been a big scandal to both be gay and into drag. And that was why Wellman committed suicide, because there was no way he he was going to come back from that. He would probably have rather gone to jail forever for murder and nobody ever find out about this. So we know now for sure that Mr. Chang is using blackmail in order to get these people to do his bidding. And we find out slowly what he has on them. 
Clem served in Vietnam. In his first major skirmish, he freaked out and ran. And his sergeant chased him down and into, um, I think he said a, f- a barn. But he, his sergeant was going to murder him on the spot for desertion. Was going to shoot him and kill him. And a mortar shell hit and his sergeant was wounded, but not dead. And Clem left him for dead and went back and joined, rejoined his unit. So he didn't think anybody knew about that, but somebody did. Somebody found out and they used that against him. That's what they, what Mr. Chang used to get him to commit murder. Now he doesn't, Clem is confessing this to his wife, but doesn't say what he did, only that he's done something and now he's been asked to do something else and it's never going to end. We find out later that Bonnie's crime was that she got Rick to tamper with her husband's car, which caused him to have an accident and die, and that she bribed a witness who saw Rick tampering with the car to change his story. So Rick got out of trouble. So that is the jam she was alluding to earlier. So that was how Mr. Chang was able to get them to commit murder. And now we know that no, Charlie is not a red herring. He was the tool that Mr. Chang used to dig up all of this information on these people to get them to commit murder. And there is a reason for that. And Fivo needs to find it. Once they see Charlie, they look into Mr. Chang and they look into this building. Why did Marty want this building? And they figure that Marty had to have been there because Marty's a mobster. Mobsters, if they have a legitimate business, it's typically for money laundering. But Marty was there to take over a racket that Mr. Chang must have been running. They don't know what the racket is, but that must be what was happening with the purchase of this building. And so to protect it, Mr. Chang uses the blackmail to get these three people to kill Marty. It's smart. I've been saying this whole time. It was a very clever plan because a pro hitman would have been picked up immediately by the bodyguards and by Marty. Amateurs, not so much. So it was a great way to get close to him in order to commit this murder. Fivo was fixated on trying to figure out what this racket is. What is Mr. Chang's racket? What was he trying to protect? And it turns out that it's the old real estate adage. Location, location, location. Our guest stars were certainly in the right place at the right time. Let's take a closer look at them. Bonnie Soames was played by Joanna Barnes. She was Lola on 21 Beacon Street. Katie O'Brien on The Trials of O'Brien. And Sharon Cody on Executive Suite. She also appeared in episodes of Cheyenne, Hawaiian Eye, Mr. Lucky, Maverick, The Tab Hunter Show, Laramie, The Beverly Hillbillies, 77 Sunset Strip, Mannix, Alias Smith & Jones, The New Perry Mason, Landed of the Apes, SWAT, Ellery Queen, Fantasy Island, Charlie's Angels, Barney Miller, Trapper John M.D., Benson, Murder She Wrote, and Cheers. She appeared in the movies The Parent Trap, both the 1961 and the 1998 versions, B.S. I Love You, The War Wagon, Goodbye Charlie, Spartacus, Tarzan the Ape Man, Auntie Mame, and Violet Road. And she appeared in the TV movie Secrets of a Mother and Daughter. Marty was played by Simon Oakland. This is his third of five episodes. We also saw him in Strangers in Our Own Land and The Reunion. Frank Wellman was played by Bill Edwards. This is his second of 17 episodes. We also saw him in Highest Castle, Deepest Grave. Chang was played by Quan Hai Lim. This is his sixth of 25 episodes. Clem Brown was played by Morgan Upton. 
He appeared in episodes of Apple's Way, The Streets of San Francisco, Fernwood Tonight, Columbo, Laverne and Shirley, and he was a voice on the Ewoks cartoon. He appeared in the movies The Spirit of 76, Peggy Sue Got Married, Massive Retaliation, The Survivors, Shoot the Moon, Die Laughing, Corvette Summer, Nightmare in Blood, Linda Lovelace for President, Maxie, and One is a Lonely Number. And he appeared in the TV movies Stalk the Wild Child, Tailgunner Joe, It Happened One Christmas, The Grass is Always Greener Over the Septic Tank, The Blue Yonder, and The Long Road Home. Doris Brown was played by Josie Over. This is her sixth of 16 episodes. Rick Marlowe was played by John Hansen. He also appeared in episodes of The Greatest Heroes of the Bible. He appeared in the movies The Christine Jorgensen Story, Earthbound, and The Returning, and he appeared in the TV movies Uncommon Valor, The Time Machine, and The Incredible Rocky Mountain Race. And in an uncredited role, Paul, the county engineer, was played by John Alexis Howard. This is his fourth of nine episodes. And that is Didn't We Meet at a Murder. I really enjoy this episode because I love the narrative of it, the narrative structure of it, and how we are clued into what's going on, the bits and pieces that come together. And how we learn about the this crime and why this murder took place and how Mr. Chang was able to manipulate these people. The ending also ties everything together really well. The payoff is nice when you find out why all of this was happening. It's an extra bit of fun, I think, especially with the, the final capture. It's a good time. You should give it a watch. <laughs> I got a graveyard, brother. Nothing's happening here place is dead. Well, at least you got an ocean breeze. Yeah. Woodley, Albert R., damage controlman, seaman first. Who brought him in, Doc? Shore Patrol. He was DOA. Murdered. Had to be. You know uh, Danny Williams? Claude Wells, Navy Investigative Service. The rumble was he brought in a kilo of pure heroin, Steve. I had two men on him, but he shook them off. Must have made his drop. Some payoff. Yeah. What killed him, Doc? Don't know. I'm running a general unknown. If there's anything we can do at 5-0 or the county coroners, let us know. Let's go. Nothing here, Steve. Nothing at all. Well, he collects tattoos. That rose on his right arm is a fresh one. Then I'll put Kono on it. Every artist has a signature. I want to know who left that one on the kid. Right. If Woodley delivered that kilo pure. Yeah. 10,000 jolts floating around. Claude, uh, who is John Haskell? Dealer, supplier, nobody we know. I do. The USS John Haskell leaves Subic Bay tomorrow morning, coming back from a tour with the 7th Fleet. When does she arrive here? She's about 15 days from Pearl, sir. Episode 23, Follow the White Brick Road. Air date, February 29th, 1972. Directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is his 18th of 36 episodes. And written by John Furia. This is his first of two episodes. A sailor is wandering the streets looking for something or someone. The someone finds him, and the sailor takes off, running from two guys in Aloha shirts. He uses trash cans to his advantage and manages to jump into a taxi to escape. The guy in the pink Aloha shirt makes a call at a payphone, saying that the sailor got away and he needs more men. The sailor shows up at the White Horse Tattoo Parlor, where he makes a delivery of a brick of heroin to a man with a safe full of cash. 
and then gets some fresh ink. He then leaves, wandering into traffic and nearly getting hit before he collapses. A uniform rushes to his aid, but the only thing he says before dying is John Haskell. In the morgue, he's identified as someone else, Albert Woodley, and we don't know what he died of yet. Claude Wells of NIS says John Haskell is the name of a Navy ship and it's coming into Hawaii. Navy investigative services have been running an undercover operation trying to find out who's bringing in this heroin, and they think there's another kilo there. There's an undercover guy named Franklin on board posing as a medical officer. Would Five O like to contribute an undercover guy? The governor suggests that Steve could get his reserve training in early, but Steve would rather keep that ace in the hole for now. He has someone else in mind. On board the ship, undercover Danny goes through his paces as the assistant to undercover Franklin, both men surreptitiously looking for the heroine. Danny reports to the ship commander that they haven't turned up shit. It's possible the dealer is also an addict himself, and they should push the amnesty route for him, allowing the guy to turn himself in without fear of court-martial. Kono's search for the tattoo artist turns up the heroin haver, a man by the name of Surigao, a frugal man who smokes Filipino cigarettes in a pipe. Weird. He says that Woodley stopped in for a tattoo, and he saw in the papers that he died, but he didn't know he was murdered. He says that Woodley didn't say anything about where he was going. Steve tells him to contact them if he thinks of anything, and after they leave, tells Kono to dig into Surigao since he was the last man to see Woodley alive. On board the John Haskell, Art Salton goes to damage control 3C John Dillon, looking for a fix. Dillon is reluctant to help him out until Art brings up Woodley's name. Then he says the store is closed. Art's jonesing bad and threatens to out Dillon if he doesn't hook him up. Dylan relents, takes Art's money, and tells him to meet him at 2200 hours. Art doesn't think he can hack it that long, but Dylan says he doesn't have a choice. Art is desperate for his fix. Doc says that Woodley was killed by an alkaloid and by the looks of it a rare one. They luck out. It's a conatine, commonly known as monkshood. When distilled, a tiny amount is fatal. A single drop on a man's sweaty hand could cause death in less than an hour. It could be also be introduced orally or intravenously. Steve calls Chin and tells him to lock down that tattoo parlor so they can examine everything inside. He's running on a hunch that later doesn't exactly pan out. Chin doesn't find anything in the tattoo shop, nor does he find anything suspicious about Saragao's bank accounts. He still sends his mother in the Philippines $30 every month. Art tries to break into the sick bay, but Danny catches him. Art covers, saying that he was looking for Danny because he has a headache and can't sleep. Inside, Danny accurately calls him out as jonesing, but Art will only admit to snorting once in a while in Vietnam, just to stay normal. Who among us? Danny says Art has two choices. Danny turns him in and he gets court-martialed, or Art turns himself in, gets am amnesty through the exemption, and gets help. Art agonizes over the choice. He asks Danny for 15 minutes to think about it. Danny grants him that, saying if he doesn't turn himself in, Danny will. Dano then calls in to Steve, saying that he let Art go so he wouldn't blow his cover. Steve agrees that it was a good move. There's a lot at stake here. Art goes to see Dylan, asking for his money back. He says he's going for exemption. Dylan says it's a good idea. He then tantalizes Art with talks of jolts and sweet dreams before giving him back his money. He then tells him that he, he's got four days before they get to Pearl. If they don't have anything for him on board, he'll have to kick it cold. 
If he waits until Pearl, then he'll get methadone. Art says he'll sweat it out, but Dylan doubts he could last four minutes. Dylan produces a syringe all ready to go, offering Art the ultimate fix. They find Art unconscious later, comatose from an overdose. Jay finds some interesting trace under Woodley's fingernails. Steve guesses it might have have come from the smack's hiding place and pressures Che to make a guess at what it is. Maybe explosives, flares, dye markers. It will take time to figure out exactly what. Che supervises his lab techs analyzing compounds on the ship that might match the trace under Woodley's fingernails. They come through. Potassium chlorinate. In the Navy, it's called Purple K, and it's used in fire extinguishers. It's now time for Steve to play his ace. Undercover Steve boards the John Haskell to find the heroine and the dealer. My friends, nothing pleases me more than an undercover episode. And this episode is just so undercover. And the reason why I love undercover episodes so much is because we get the ugly undercover Aloha shirts. They are plentiful in this episode, both in the beginning and in the end. So in the beginning, we just see this sailor spot these two guys in ugly Aloha shirts. And you know, he recognizes them as the dudes because they're wearing those particular undercover shirts. He goes running. The dudes go chasing him. Now the dudes, one of them, The guy in the pink Aloha shirt, he's a bit older. He's a little heavier. He should probably not be chasing people down back alleys. Probably not quite up to fitness enough for that. But he does, he gives his best. And then we get the sailor using garbage cans. Like he literally Donkey Kongs them with garbage cans, chucks them at them and manages to get away and get in the taxi. He ends up going to the White Horse Tattoo Parlor, which is just a little bit on the nose given the fact that one of the slang terms for heroin is horse. He goes, he delivers his package, he gets a tattoo, he collapses and dies outside in traffic, which is very inconvenient. It's when he's identified, because he says when he dies, or before he passes out, he says John Haskell. So you think that might be his name, but then we find out that it's actually not. He's Albert Woodley, and we're introduced to the Navy Investigative Services. So this was what they called NCIS before it was NCIS. Now it's Navy Criminal Investigative Services. Back in the day, it was just Navy Investigative Services. And we have Claude Wells is our contact here. And he informs Steve and then later the governor and an admiral who was played by an actual admiral because this episode begins with a statement on screen saying that the show wishes to thank the cooperation of the Navy and the Defense Department. So they used an actual admiral. It was Admiral Joseph Goldrick was playing Admiral Sample. And according to booking Hawaii Five-O by Karen Rhodes, which I have not referred to enough while discussing this season, she says that the episode also highlighted the drug exemption program, which was in effect for the Navy at the time, as it was laid out in the episode, which is instead of getting court-martialed and dishonorably discharged, you turned yourself in, you wouldn't, you would get help, but you wouldn't get dishonorably discharged. No court martial if you sought help. And the episode kind of is, I mean, obviously it's going to be pro-Navy, it's pro-police, but there are certain aspects of it that kind of are a little bit Navy recruitment, I think. Later in the episode, in order to distract from doing a search, they do a man overboard drill and the way it's kind of shot and intercut with them doing searching for these drugs, it's almost like a demonstration of how cool the Navy is and what you could be doing in the Navy. I mean, it's it's a little bit 
in my opinion, there's a little bit of in the Navy village people recruitment feel to it. But that's neither here nor there. And in the Navy is one of the village people's best songs. I will hear no arguments. Anyway, the Navy is doing this investigation to find out who's bringing these drugs in, who's dealing these drugs. They already have an undercover man in a guy named Franklin. And Franklin looks like he's an older gentleman, probably pushing 50 in the vicinity of 50 heavier set white hair. He looks like a career Navy man. So bravo in the casting there. And they ask if five O has someone they would like to put on board undercover. Steve, what would you say to planting one of your men aboard the Haskell? My very thoughts, sir. Now, Steve, looks like you're going to get your reserve training early this year. I'd like to uh, hold that ace until we need it, Governor. A good cover would be an assistant to the chief, medical corpsman. That way, he could work closely with Franklin. We could put him aboard at Subic. Got a man who qualifies? Yeah, I got just the one. So he has Danny go undercover. So we get a lot of Danny in his little sailor suit, and he is adorable. Check the blog. I will put pictures up of all of my undercover outfits that I adore because it is my favorite thing. So Danny goes undercover, working with Franklin, trying to find out where these drugs are hidden, and they can't. They cannot find where they're at. Meanwhile, we are introduced to Art and Dylan. Dylan is the dealer. Art was uh, chipping is what they call it in Vietnam, but now he's hooked and he needs a fix. He's out and he knows that Dylan is a supplier because Woodley told him. He tries to get Dylan to supply him and Dylan is reluctant to do so until Art says, I'll squeal on you if you don't. And it's at that moment we know that Art is probably not going to make it throughout the entire episode. You can't tell people that and expect nothing bad to happen to you. We have seen it time and time again. But Dylan relents, takes his money, makes the arrangements to meet him later. And Art, in the meantime, is hurt and bad. And the actor does a really good job. It's um, Mark Jenkins, whom we've seen before. He does a really good job of portraying an addict in need. And we see his desperation because he, he goes through his wallet where he's got the balloons of his heroin supply and he is combing through him looking for any remnants to try to tide him over to get him to 2200 hours. And in his desperation, it leads him to breaking into the sick bay or trying to break into the sick bay. Danny catches him, sort of. Danny comes up on him and just or like turns really quickly. So Danny can't really see what he's doing. And Art covers by saying, oh, I was looking for you. I need something for a headache. I can't sleep. And of course, Danny calls him out once he gets him in the lights. You're using me? No. I was snorting a little in that. Lots of guys tried something just to stay normal. Normal? You're strung out. Me? You know it. I know it. 
By tomorrow, everybody will know it. Pretty much talks him into using the exemption program. Because the the choices Art has at this point is Danny turns him in or Art turns himself in. And he decides to take that, but he's got to go to Dylan first and he's got to get his money back. That's why he asked for the 15 minutes. Now, because you have already previously said that if you didn't get what you wanted, you were going to squeal. And now you're going to enter into this exemption program so nothing bad will happen to you. But there is still the potential of squealing because you know who Dylan is. You're really not going to leave this situation in a good state. And that happens. And Dylan, to prove what an absolute bastard he is. No more jolt, huh? No more sweet dreams. You better count it. I don't want to cheat you. It's okay. Hey, Salton. We got four more days to Pearl. That's a long time. You know if they got anything for you on board ship? Keep your skull from blowing up? Four days. I hate to have to see you kick it cold. It's okay. You know, if I was you, I'd wait till we got to Pearl. I mean, they have methadone there for you, for sure. Man, you get exempted. Don't have to sweat those... those days. Those long nights with no sweets. And it's so great because he he really is pushing, and, and Art is so good at resisting. He is dead set, he is dedicated. He knows this is going to hurt, but he's going to do it. Like, the willpower is in... And then Dylan brings out that syringe and it's all gone and you know it's all over for him. And they find him unconscious at the bottom of the stairwell, overdosed. And we later find out from Kono that he's in a coma because of it. And it's really kind of sad because Danny worked very hard to try to help this poor guy. And he was right there to help himself. And I don't think I should have to tell you how it's going to, how his coma is going to turn out because in TV with the addict's morality tale, there's only one way that ends, ever. Meanwhile, they're trying to figure out what killed Albert Woodley, because we love a rare poison, as we have seen with Cloth of Gold. Doc loves a challenge. So Doc is investigating this, and he's, it looks like he's giving Woodley's blood a polygraph, I guess, because he's, it's this weird, like, polygraph type graph thing that he's going through. I guess analyzing he says the millimeters or the it's somehow analyzed blood it is mass spec before it was mass spec i don't even know how this works it might not even work they probably just could have said listen we're just going to pretend to put the blood through a polygraph machine and make it science they could have totally done that i never would have known the difference i don't think anybody in 1972 would have known the difference either whatever he does he figures out doc figures out that it is a conatine that poisoned woodley and that it's found in a plant called monkshood that has to be distilled in order to be used as a poison. But once it is, it is very, very dangerous. One drop on a, a man's sweaty hand will kill him. That's how dangerous it is. So Steve automatically assumes that it was introduced to him through the tattoo needle because we know he has a fresh tattoo. The tattoo is how they're led to Surigao, 
And I love this scene because Kono is the one who has to track them down. And he goes and he talks to this lady who runs a tattoo parlor. And she is my favorite thing about this entire episode. Can you identify the artist? This is not art. Well, whoever did it. Some nearsighted wino in a mainland clip joint, no doubt. But it's through her that we find Sarah Gao and they talk to Sarah Gao and he admits to giving the tattoo, but he doesn't admit to anything else, obviously, except for smoking cheap Filipino cigarettes. And that it establishes him that he's a frugal guy. And when later when Chin Ho looks into his bank accounts, they find out he's got money saved. He's got like a thousand dollars saved up in his bank accounts and he still sends his mom $30 every month in the Philippines. So he, they see him as a very frugal guy with nothing outwardly apparent happening. But when we find out that Woodley dies from aconitine, they lock down the shop and test all of his dyes, his inks, his needles, everything to see if he's behind this. And the thing is, and this is not necessarily a spoiler, it ends up being an unsolved mystery on how this poison was introduced and why, because they never clarify that. They never say for sure that Saragot had anything to do with Woodley's death. They can't prove it. We're also not 100% sure why. They never say why Woodley would have been killed, why Saragot would have killed Woodley, other than are we trying to eliminate a middleman here? Are we done using him because maybe he's using there's no clear motive for Woodley's death. There's no clear resolution to Woodley's death. We don't know. It's never addressed. But obviously it doesn't clear Saragal 100% from the heroin because we know that he's heavily invested in the heroin trade. And they are still unable to find where the heroin is hiding out on the ship. Danny and Franklin have looked all over. They can't find it. They believe that the key to finding it is in the trace under Woodley's fingernails. Now, Che can't say exactly what it is in the context of a Navy ship because it could be explosives, it could be dye markers, it could be flares. And he's only and he only admits to that after Steve pressures him because he says that we're running out of time, we have to figure this out. And he really lays the pressure on Che. And Che answers that call by getting his little lab people together and supervising them as they analyze all of these potential compounds that could be on a Navy ship and try to match it to what they found under Woodley's fingernails. And they finally do. And it's this stuff called Purple K, which they use in fire extinguishers. So they figure that the heroin, whatever kilo is on board, is probably hidden in a fire extinguisher somewhere. And this is when Steve decides to play his ace, and he comes aboard and also plays Sailor with Dano. And they do this man overboard drill under the pretenses that they're showing off for Steve, I think. And that gives Franklin and Danny time to search all of the fire extinguishers and they find it. They find the heroin. They then take this opportunity to set up a security camera. They put it in an emergency box and affix it to the wall so it's facing the fire extinguisher in question. And then Danny and Franklin are tasked with watching the incredibly boring security footage of these people passing by this fire extinguisher because they end up docking at Pearl. That means the guys can have shore leave. And so they're watching these people and they're specifically looking for Dylan because the only he is the only person that does anything with the fire extinguishers. I guess he refills them 
part of his job. He he does the maintenance on the fire extinguisher. So they're specifically looking for Dylan to go to this particular fire extinguisher and acquire this kilo of heroin. But he doesn't. He walks right by it. Doesn't even look at it. Which is confounding. And the NIS guys end up following him once he's off the ship because as far as everybody knows, he should be the only person handling this heroin. He should be the dealer. He should have gotten his heroin before going off the ship. But he doesn't. Someone else does. Someone entirely unexpected that we have not seen before shows up under the guise of doing maintenance checks. In the credits, he's only known as Hard Hat. It's David Doyle. It's Bosley from Charlie's Angels. So now we know what Bosley was doing before Charlie found him. But this middleman shows up and he ends up picking up the heroin. And that's when we find out it will take some hot undercover Aloha shirt action to catch all of the bad guys involved in this heroin trade. We don't need to keep our guest cast undercover. They're pretty great. Let's take a closer look at them. As I said, Art Salton was played by Mark Jenkins. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in The Bomber and Mrs. Maroney. Damage Control Man 3C John Dillon was played by the great David Burney. This is his first of three episodes. He played Bernie Steinberg on Bridget Loves Bernie. Officer Frank Serpico on the TV version of Serpico. David Ben Samuels on St. Elsewhere. Sam Dillon on Glitter. Dr. Bernard Lacey on Seal Morning. And Harry Chandler Moore on Live Shot. He also appeared in episodes of FBI, Laugh-In, Macmillan and Wife, Cannon, Medical Center, Police Story, Fantasy Island, Love Boat, and Love Boat to the Next Wave, the 1986 Twilight Zone, Matlock, Murder, She Wrote, the 1994 version of Burke's Law, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, Sliders, and Without a Trace. He appeared in the movies A Dirty Night's Work, Oh God, Book Two, Tomorrow's a Killer, Nightfall, The Naked Truth, and The Comedy of Errors. He appeared in the TV movies, Touch and Die, Keeping Secrets, Love and Betrayal, The Five of Me, Mom, The Werewolf and Me, Someone's Watching Me, Only with Married Men, and Murder or Mercy. And he appeared in the miniseries Secrets, Master of the Game, Jacqueline Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls, Testimony of Two Men, and The Addams Chronicles. As I said, Hard Hat, that's what he's listed as in the credits was played by David Doyle. He was best known as John Bosley on Charlie's Angels, and he is my favorite angel. He was also Walter Fitzgerald on Bridget Loves Bernie with David Bernie. He was Ted Atwater on the new Dick Van Dyke show, Professor McCutcheon on Aussie Squirrels, Frank Macklin on Sweet Surrender. He was the voice of Mel on Foofer and the voice of Grandpa Pickles on The Rugrats. He also appeared in episodes of The Patty Duke Show, That Girl, The Doris Day Show, Banachak, Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Kojak, Sanford and Son, Ellery Queen, Barney Miller, Police Story, Fantasy Island, Fall Guy, Murder, She Wrote, Love Boat, The New WKRP, and General Hospital. He appeared in the movies Lover Money, Ghost Rider, Capricorn One, Vigilante Force, Ginger in the Morning, Who Killed What's-Her-Name, Making It, the Pursuit of Happiness, Paper Lion, and Coogan's Bluff. 
He appeared in the TV movies Incident on a Dark Street, Money to Burn, Bloodsport, The Stranger Within, Black Market Baby, and Maybe Baby. And he was in the miniseries The Blue and the Gray. Chief Hospital Corman Franklin was played by Charles Gilbert. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in No Blue Skies and All the King's Horses. Claude Wells was played by Mitch Mitchell. This is his fifth of 15 episodes. Surigal was played by Moki Palacio. This is his third of six episodes. We also saw him in Tiger by the Tail and Singapore File. As I said, Admiral Sample was played by Admiral Joseph McGoldrick, and this is his only credit. Madame Sung was played by Sue Yong. This is her second of four episodes. We also saw her in Grandstand Play. Albert Woodley was played by Stephen Matthews. This is his only credit. And in an uncredited role, Sailor Number 1 was played by Russell O. Miller, and this is his only credit. Our writer, John Furio, wrote two episodes of Hawaii Five-O. He also wrote two episodes of The DuPont Show with June Allison, five episodes of Bonanza, four episodes of Dr. Kildare, 12 episodes of Insight, three episodes of The Waltons, and an episode of Longstreet, 240 Robert, and Kung Fu. He also has a creator credit for Hotel. He also has writing credits for the movies Change of Habits and The Singing Nun. I'm sensing a theme. And he has writing credits for the TV movies Smoke, The Healers, The Death of Ocean View Park, and My Mother's Secret. He also has 17 producer credits, including for 31 episodes of Insight, 12 episodes of Kung Fu, and 4 episodes of Apple's Way. And he also has producing credits for the TV movies My Mother's Secret Life, The Death of Ocean View Park, The Healers, The Intruder Within, and The Hustler of Muscle Beach. And that is Follow the White Brick Road. I really do like this episode, in addition to all of the wonderful undercover action, because we know I love that so much. We do have another rare instance of treating addicts with some sort of compassion, because you don't always get that in police procedurals. But in this case, by pushing the exemption option for the Navy, they're treating them less like criminals and more like people who have addiction issues. And that's not something to be criminalized. You don't see that a lot in 1970s television. But unfortunately, what we do have, what was predominant then, was the addict's morality tale, which only ends one way, which is unfortunate. But we balance that with with Five O and NIS working together to track down this heroin dealer and the undercover adventure into that. And we meet some great characters on the way. Yes, we have this huge problem of Woodley's death being left unresolved. And I don't believe that was necessarily intentional. Like some things just aren't in life, aren't meant to be resolved. I just think it's a thread that did not get finished, which is unfortunate. But I don't consider that to be a huge detraction from the rest of the episode. Yes, it's kind of a drag and it's kind of a knock against it. If I were at all in the habit of giving things stars, that would be a star off, but I'm not. I'm just here to enjoy things, and I enjoy this episode, even with its flaws. The uh, Aloha shirts just make up for it, I guess. Give this one a watch. You know, I know more about John Sugar than his old mother. And that is 
episode 50 of Bookum Dano. Two episodes that I really do enjoy. I think they're fun rides to go on. One, narratively, is a little bit better than the other. Didn't We Meet at a Murder is a little more clever, I think. The twist at the end of Follow the White Brick Road when Dylan doesn't pick up his drugs, which leads us in a different direction, is interesting, but doesn't entirely make up for the fact that Woodley's death is kind of left hanging. But they're both enjoyable episodes. They're good rides. And they're two good episodes to be winding down the season with. We have only one more episode in season four of Hawaii Five-0, and that means one more episode of season four of Bookum Dano. We're almost done, guys. So as always, thank you for listening. I always appreciate your ears. If you want to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. Please check out the Patreon. And if you want to be exposed to my love of undercover Aloha shirts in real time, you can somehow still do that by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So don't do anything worth being blackmailed over. And keep your undercover duds handy. Until next time. Aloha.